Welcome to Bible Breath, where we dig into the Word of God to catch our breath for whatever's coming next. Today we're continuing to go through the Ten Commandments, focusing on the commandments that teach us how to interact with our neighbors. And remember, our neighbor is anyone around us, especially those in need of mercy and help. review the commandments that we have talked about so far. And remember, we are using the numbering for the commandments that we find in a book called The Small Catechism Written by a Man Named Martin Luther. So let's review. First commandment, you shall have no other gods. Second commandment, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Third commandment, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Fourth commandment, honor your father and your mother, that it may go well with you. Fifth commandment, you shall not murder. That's what we've talked about so far. Remember, for each of these commandments that we're going through now, we're going to state a general principle or a category of life that it addresses. And then we will look in other places in the Bible to make some specific applications that it makes to that very general category. And for the sixth commandment, the general principle or category of life that we're going to talk about is intimacy. Now, there are different levels of intimacy. You know, like if, uh, if I wave at you, that's a level of intimacy. It's a, it's a personal connection in some type of way, not a very intimate connection, but it's a, it's a personal connection. So a very low on the level of intimacy there. If I wave, if I walk up to you and I shake your hand, or if I give you a fist bump, that's maybe a little bit closer. And then if I give you a hug, that's a little bit closer. If somebody gives you a kiss, that's a little bit more intimate. So uh, different levels of intimacy. And then there's the level of intimacy that is talked about in the sixth commandment. The sixth commandment says, you shall not commit adultery. The sixth commandment talks about the closest kind of human intimacy, and God wants us to take it very seriously. And so let's talk about where it started and why God created it the way he did. This started all the way back in the beginning. Go back to the book of Genesis, the creation of Adam and Eve. This is before there was sin. God created some very special things in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2 says this, after Adam had already been created, he was all by himself. God gave him a job to name the animals. He got done naming the animals. Adam likely noticed that the animals had someone who was like them, you know, two elephants, two aardvarks, two ants. There were at least two of them so that they could reproduce and procreate. And Adam is maybe thinking, it's like, oh, that's nice that they have somebody that who's like them, that, that they can relate to and they can ask for advice on how to be the unique creation of God that they are. So he looked around and didn't see anyone like him and possibly felt lonely in that moment. Uh, Genesis, uh, Genesis 2 picks it up there and says, For Adam no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. The man said, after he woke up now, it's like, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man the world's first love son. It might not sound very lovey, but back then it would have been. <laughs> this is why a man goes on to say, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they will become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. A lot of firsts there in Genesis chapter two. That was the very first marriage. God starts out the very first marriage. Marriage was part of God's perfect design. Um, different, um, different look at uh, first look at the different genders, male and female. Uh, they were also very different. They were different from the very beginning. 
We also see some, uh, a couple of things very closely related to physical intimacy. There was, first of all, an emotional vulnerability that we see here in verse 25, where it says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Neither of them had the ability to physically hide anything. There was nothing they could hide standing naked in front of one another. So they were emotionally, you know, emotionally vulnerable. They could have been thinking, what is that person thinking of me? <laughs> but it doesn't seem they did because they felt no shame. They were emotionally vulnerable, as vulnerable as a person could be, and yet they felt completely safe. And it probably had something to do with how, the, how they were treating each other and looking at one another. By the way Adam looked at Eve and by the way Eve looked at Adam, they, they were both convinced this person loves me just as I am. And so while they were emotionally vulnerable, they felt emotionally safe, which is huge. Then there's also another vulnerability. There was the physical vulnerability. They were physically vulnerable to one another. We see that in the in the one flesh phrase. You know, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. That's that's talking about the sexual intimacy, the act of sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife, between a man and a woman. When they are in the act of sexual intimacy, it looks like if you were looking from the outside, it looks like they're just one piece of flesh instead of two individual pieces of flesh. They will become one flesh, closer to another human being than you could ever possibly be, and so more vulnerable to another human being than you could ever possibly be. And yet, God was designing this where you could be physically vulnerable and yet feel entirely safe because you're safe in the care of somebody who cares for you. And so both those things are really significant. This unique emotional stability in the first marriage where they felt completely safe, and this unique physical vulnerability in which they felt very, very safe. God from the get-go is saying this is something that he is providing for one, that men and women are supposed to provide for one another in marriage. And throughout scripture, it's clear that God created this unique physical and emotional intimacy to be used within the confines of how God created marriage and only within the confines of how God created marriage. Go far into the New Testament in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 13, it says, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. At this point, we should probably define, before we get too much further into it, the word adultery. This will be one of our Bible buzzwords, the word adultery. And the word adultery means sexual activity outside of the God-designed marriage relationship. Adultery is sexual activity outside the God-designed marriage relationship, which of course leads to a question. What is the God-designed marriage relationship? Well, Jesus defined that for us by talking about how God made marriage at the very beginning. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 19, was asked about marriage and divorce. We'll get into that in just a second. But Jesus said, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, so he's going back to the book of Genesis, the part that we just read, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, Jesus went on to say, let no one separate. And so there we can get a three-part definition of marriage. There are three parts to it. One man and one woman joined before God for life. We'll use that three-part definition as our Bible buzzword definition for marriage. Marriage is one man and one woman joined before God for life. One man and one woman joined before God for life. Let's talk very briefly about each of those parts. First of all, one man and one woman. The physical and emotional intimacy of a sexual relationship is something God created to be experienced by a man and a woman. 
and or a woman and a man, not a man with a man or a woman with a woman. And you know as well as I do that some don't feel that way. They feel like you should be able to make your own decisions on this, that men and men should be able to be sexually intimate with one another and women and women should be able to be sexually intimate with one another if that's how, if that's how they feel. But remember, as Christians, our lives aren't dictated by how strongly we feel something, but instead by what God says in his word. Following his word is how we show that we trust God even more than we trust ourselves. And not only do we find the Bible very positively reinforcing the two-gender marriage and sexual relationship, one man and one woman, we also see it condemning the same gender sexual relationships, man and man, woman and woman, in books like 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians and Jude, among, among many others. And it doesn't, the Bible doesn't condemn homosexuality as a worse sin than any other, but as one of many sins that, if left unrepented, will result in eternal separation from God for the person who continues to practice that sin. One man and one woman. Let's go to the second phrase, joined before God. The physical and emotional intimacy of the sexual relationship is designed for those whom God has joined together. And so that leads to a question, when are a man and woman joined together by God? When are they married is the, is the question. And the answer to that is when God recognizes them as married, of course. <laughs> and so I sometimes get the question as to, you know, when that takes place. Um, sometimes people ask the question, is being engaged marriage in God's eyes? So does that count? And people are often asking that question because they want to begin to enjoy the benefits of married life before they are legally, before they are legally married, just while they're engaged. That's not always why somebody is asking, but it often is. But the question is being engaged, the same thing as being married. So is, does that count in God's eyes? And the answer is, well, yes, if your government recognizes your engagement as marriage. Now, I currently live in a country in which the government, the government of our country does not recognize engagement as marriage. There are legal benefits to being married that you do not receive if you are simply engaged. And because in Romans chapter 13, the Apostle Paul reminds us that everyone must submit themselves to the governing authorities, that means that if our government doesn't recognize us as married, then God doesn't either. The physical and emotional intimacy of the sexual relationship is reserved for those who are legally married. What that's going to look like in different times of uh, times of history and in different countries, it's going it's going to be different. But the same general principle applies: is that even in a sense, God in a sense submits Himself to our government authorities by when it comes to when it comes to marriage. If the government says you're married, you are. If your local government doesn't say you're married, then you're not. Not even in God's eyes. Let's go to that last phrase: one man and one woman joined before God for life. Those whom God has joined together, let no one separate, Jesus said. So the question that often comes up here is, does this mean a couple can't ever divorce? And that's the question that Jesus was asked after he defined marriage the way that he did in the section that we read earlier. So he defined marriage the way he did, the three-part, um, one man and one woman joined before God for life. Well, why then, they ask, did Moses, back in the Old Testament, command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? It seems like divorce was happening in the Old Testament and Moses was helping it happen, they're basically saying. Jesus replied, well, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not that way from the beginning. 
And he went on to say again, I, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and then marries another woman commits adultery. And so, yes, divorce was not part of God's original plan. But sometimes, Jesus was saying, related to the heart, hearts being hard, sometimes a person can cause so much hurt to their spouse with their unfaithfulness that God, who is merciful, knows that the pain of legally breaking the marriage apart can be less than the pain of staying in a relationship where trust has been broken or where a person is no longer physically or emotionally safe. And so he allows divorce in those instances. To say that he's happy that this happens would never be accurate. But he allows it. And he still promises to be with you if that's a difficult decision that you have to make. That you have to make. He doesn't command it in those situations. You know, grace can still be applied in the most hurtful relationships and healing can still take place. But God knows that someone in a situation like that isn't dealing with any good options. You're just dealing with two very, very difficult options and you have to pick one. Again, let's review our definition of marriage. Marriage is one man and one woman joined before God for life. Now, this doesn't mean that only married people can break this commandment. Uh, sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Uh, so we're going to list uh, just a couple of ways real briefly that it can be broken both by married people and also by unmarried people. By married people, the, the most obvious one is the one that everyone thinks of, adultery. You know, and Jesus said, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, that's, that's adultery. By having a physical, sexual relationship with someone other than the person to whom you are married, committing adultery is breaking the sixth commandment. And it's not just destroying a marriage like that that's bad. There are ways that people can chip, chip away at marriages gradually, and the Bible talks about those too. In Colossians chapter 3, for example, it says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Being harsh with your spouse is a way that you can begin to chip away at the strength of a marriage. You know? So by, by treating your spouse badly instead of as a loving companion is a way that uh, is a way that you can, a person can break this, that a married couple can break the sixth commandment. In Ephesians chapter five, the apostle Paul gives us some more guidance on how husbands and wives, well, he says in a way that they can support each other well, but you do the opposite and it chips away at it. He says, each one of you talking to husbands must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. Those are great words, love and respect. There's a very intentional reason the apostle Paul applied the word love to men and respect to women saying this is the particular way you should show concern for your spouse. We could do a whole other video series that digs into the, the differences between men and women and how men are motivated by work, which is why God uses a respect, a work word, respect for wives, and how women are often motivated by relationships. And so God uses a relationship word, love, when he talks, when he talks to men. We'll, uh, we'll do that at another time. But, but basically a way that husbands and wives can chip away at their marriage is by failing to fill their spouse up in the way that God designed them to be filled up. No two individuals are the same, and it's going too far to say that every man is every man is the same and every woman is the same. There are some general things that we can say about the different genders, about how God made them and pieced them together and what motivates them and what deflates them. But in general, continue to be curious about your spouse if you are married. Continue to learn about them. Learn the unique ways that God put them together so that you can love them uniquely in the way that God designed them to be loved, doing the opposite, neglecting them, ignoring them. It chips away at the marriage and it breaks the sixth commandment. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we find another way that married couples can chip away at their marriage, and that is by withholding intimacy from their spouse. This, listen, listen to these words from the Apostle Paul. He said, he said, each man should have sexual relations with just his own wife, and each woman with just her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. Now he's continuing to talk about the, the sexual intimacy here. And likewise, the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over, over her body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his body, but yields it to his wife. And then he says this, he says, do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent. So you both agree on it. And for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again so that Satan won't tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And then he says, this isn't a command. I'm not telling you to do this. I'm saying this as a concession, not as a command. And so a spouse doesn't have the, the right to just unilaterally decide all on their own. We're no longer having sexual intimacy as part of our marriage. If you both want to agree on that, Paul says, that's great, but make sure you talk about it first. But you can't just decide that's not going to happen for, for any reason. Um, but then he says, just recognize that God created us to be sexual beings. And don't, don't put your spouse in a tempting situation by withholding from them something that God designed them to receive in a marriage relationship. So there's some different ways that married people can break the sixth commandment. How about unmarried people? The Bible talks about that too. In Ephesians 5, it says this general principle. Among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, like not even giving the impression that you are doing anything sexually immoral. He says, because these are improper for God's holy people. This passage often comes up when we talk, when somebody asks about living together with someone that they're not married to. So a man and a woman living together in the same house, not being married, um, is that okay? And I think you have to seriously, if you're thinking about that, you have to seriously consider this verse. What type of impression are you giving to your neighbors? What type of impression are you giving to the people around you? What type of impression are you giving to your family? If a man and a woman are both living in the same house, the impression will often be that there is something sexual taking place. Now, you might be able to say, like, well, we're going to set it up in a way that that's not going to happen. Separate bedrooms, everything like that. And we'll do everything we can to communicate that with the people we know. But because you will be unable to communicate with whatever ways that you've Whatever, whatever rules you've enforced to everybody, it's possible you might be giving a hint and you need to take that seriously. Um, also, if you're thinking about living together with someone before you marry them, just thinking as, well, this would be a good trial run. Just understand that statistically, you're setting your, your relationship up for pretty good failure. Not all the time, but much of the time because of the impression that you are giving to the person that you would be living together with. If you have not yet either proposed or married, proposed to them or married them, you've stopped short of taking a bigger step in your relationship. There's a more significant step that you could take. You could legally bind yourselves together and say, before God and whatever witnesses, I'm legally binding myself to you. There is no higher, higher step of commitment that I can possibly take. But if you haven't taken those, then there are steps of commitment that you could take that you haven't taken. And so you're stopping short of loving that person to the highest degree. And they know it. You're also giving the impression that because you haven't done that, you might want an out. Like that's what will often come, mind, come into a person's mind as they're thinking about this. Like, oh, this person wants to live with me. But they're stopping short of proposing. They're stopping short of living together, of being married. They just want to live together. And so they might want an out. Something better might come along. That is the unspoken assumption that you will often be giving that person. So just practically, it's best not to do it.
scripturally. You don't even want to give a hint of sexual morality. And then, of course, putting yourself in any type of position in which you might be tempted to do something sexually that God doesn't allow you to. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 talks about that, where it says very simply, flee from sexual immorality. Run away from any kind of sexual temptation. Now, this can be very difficult to put into practice in today's world, where sexual temptation shows up randomly on, on televisions and on phones and on billboards and, and pretty, much, pretty much any place. Sex sells is a phrase that you hear very often when it comes to marketing strategies. And you can't avoid it. It's going to show up at some point. And so without you even trying, you might be sexually tempted in some type of way. And yet the Bible tells us to flee from it as well as we can. Hard to practice. And then Jesus made keeping this commandment even harder when he said this in Matthew chapter 5. Talking about adultery, he said, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so it's not just the actions, it's what's going on inside of our hearts. The expectation that Jesus lays out is much higher than the expectation that you will receive from so many others. He wants us to be pure in our actions and in our thoughts, pure throughout. And as we mentioned with the previous commandment, this one doesn't make everyone feel great. I have to be pure in my actions, pure in my history, pure in what I look at, pure in how I feel about it. It can be a difficult commandment to keep. What if you haven't been pure? Well, then I want to share a biblical account with you. An account of a woman named Gomer. Gomer was a prostitute. She had broken the sixth commandment. She had helped many others break the sixth commandment. And God wanted Gomer to get married. And he picked a particular spouse for Gomer. And you know the particular spouse that he picked out for Gomer, the prostitute? A prophet named Hosea. The Lord said to Hosea, says at the beginning of Hosea, go take yourself a prostitute for a wife. And he went and he married Gomer. Why in the world would God want to do that? Well, God told Hosea. The Lord said to Hosea, and he said this, after it seems Gomer had been unfaithful to him after they had been married. So they had been married, and then Gomer went back to her prostituting ways. And Hosea is maybe thinking, good experiment, God. Well, it's all done now. But God said, no. He said, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by many others. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. And that was the reason for this marriage. God wanted Hosea and Gomer to illustrate God's love for the Israelites and for us. That even when we have been unfaithful to God, by sinning against him, by breaking commandments, God remains faithful to his promise to love us and to forgive us and to bring us into his family. All the wonderful things he's already done for us in Jesus. Whatever sin you have in your past, however strongly you are still tempted by those temptations, it doesn't take away who you already are in Christ. You are God's child. You are pure. You are forgiven. You are. Because God loves you. 
sixth commandment is one of the ways we put that love into practice. You shall not commit adultery. What does this mean? Martin Luther wrote. It means that we should fear and love God, that we lead a pure and decent life in words and actions, and that husbands and wives love and honor each other.